Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new, welcome back if you're a repeat listener. Today we're going to do part two of the receptor talk, and we're going to discuss transmembrane enzyme receptors and intracellular nuclear receptors. So what are transmembrane enzyme receptors? This is the other class of medium action signaling receptors versus the super quick ion channels or the super slow intracellular receptors, which we'll get to. These contain an extracellular binding domain and then intracellular enzymatic activity. As a rule, they work by induced dimerization, which is to say that a ligand binding to the extracellular domain causes them to dimerize and turns on their enzymatic activity. Just an aside about kinases. What do kinases do? They mainly do phosphorylation. Kinases phosphorylate a protein substrate and phosphatases dephosphorylate protein substrates. There are two different kinds broadly of kinases. You have the serine-threonine kinases and the tyrosine kinases, named depending on which residues they phosphorylate. And the ones we're going to be talking about today are mostly tyrosine kinases, so they're going to phosphorylate proteins on a tyrosine. So what's unique about these receptor tyrosine kinases? They're structured with an intracellular kinase domain, a transmembrane alpha helix, and then an extracellular domain. The kinase domains are, rel- are all relatively similar, which you'd expect because they're all doing the same thing. They're doing phosphorylation. But the extracellular portion is really the diverse part because it allows the kinases to receive these highly, highly selective signals. Now, the intracellular kinase can be associated with but not strictly a part of the receptor and the transmembrane domain, in which case it's actually called a non-receptor tyrosine kinase because the tyrosine kinase is not technically connected to the receptor. But whether or not they're actually attached, they're functionally the same. So how does this receptor kinase class activate? In its inactive state, you have two monomers of the kinase, and then ligand binding causes dimerization, leading to trans-autophosphorylation, meaning they, one monomer phosphorylates its neighbor and they turn each other on. How does ligand binding cause dimerization? There are actually four known ways that ligand binding can bring the kinases together. First one is that each receptor binds its own ligand, and then an extracellular signal brings the two monomers together. The second one is that a single ligand can bind to a site between the two monomers and kind of physically pull them closer together. A third one is that the ligand can cause conformational change in the extracellular domain and open up a binding interface between the monomers that wasn't accessible before. And the final one is that the ligand binds and then it recruits a cofactor which pulls the two together. So like we said, kinases can elicit short-term changes with second messengers or proteases, but they can also activate transcription, which is more of a long-term change. In general, transcription factors are turned on by phosphorylation. So these kinases can turn on transcription factors. So once bound to a ligand, transmembrane enzyme receptors can generate second messengers, they can initiate a protease cascade, or most commonly, they can do phosphorylation actions. Rather than cyclic AMP, these enzymes tend to work with cyclic GMP, which is not terribly different. Uh, Like adenylocyclase, guanylocyclase converts GTP to cyclic GMP, and it needs the two halves of its catalytic domain to be brought together in order to act. So yeah, very similar to what's happening with the cyclic AMP and G-protein-coupled receptors. The enzyme-linked receptors that work with cyclic GMP are generally two monomers with a single extracellular binding site. So both together will bind a ligand that brings the intracellular guanylocyclase domains together and activates it. And these receptors are actually not strictly kinases. They actually have a pseudokinase-like domain, which is structurally very similar to a kinase, but it doesn't have the loop that does the phosphate transfer that 
actually does phosphorylation. These are not even technically kinases, but they pretty much look very similar, and we consider them part of the receptor tyrosine kinase class in any event. Sometimes when we're trying to do apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, these kinases can be activated by juxtacrine signaling. So the receptor on the cell will bind a transmembrane protein on a neighboring cell, and that will initiate caspases or proteases causing apoptosis. And then finally, we're going to talk about kinases turning on transcription. So phosphorylation generally makes a transcription factor turned on and able to go to the nucleus. Or sometimes the transcription factor is active, but it's bound to an inhibitor, and phosphorylation can turn off the inhibition and allow it to translocate to the nucleus and turn on gene expression. Now, receptor tyrosine kinases do a lot of things, besides for the ones that we just mentioned. Tr the trans-autophosphorylation, which is, remember, each one turning each other on. So aside from turning the kinases on, it actually also causes the phosphorylated tyrosine kinase residues to build a scaffold by binding the SH2 domains of adapter proteins. These scaffolds then form a signaling complex which brings enzymes and substrates together. Adapter proteins have no activity by themselves, they just kind of bring things together. So they're basically like an, almost like an interactive workbench. So one example of this is the involvement in the RAS signaling. The RAS family is a family of small G proteins. Small G proteins work similarly to the alpha subunit of the big G proteins, which are on the G protein coupled receptors. But the main difference is really how they turn on and off. So just to refresh the mechanism, G proteins are inactive with GDP, which they're usually bound to, and active with GTP. In the case of the large G proteins, it's, in, it's interaction with the receptor part that causes the binding site to open and allows it to bind to GTP. With the small G proteins, they need a GEF, guanine exchange factor, to open the binding site and release the GDP. Then once it binds the GTP, it signals to its effectors. And then in the case of the large G, G proteins, they have this intrinsic GTPase where they turn off. The small G proteins do not have intrinsic GTPase and they can't turn themselves off. So left alone, they would stay in the on position pretty much forever. So the small G proteins use an enzyme called GAP, GTPase activating protein, to turn it off. These are, in general, much less self-regulating than the big G proteins, which have an internal clock, as you can kind of imagine. So how do, how do receptor tyrosine kinases fit into this picture? When the receptor turns on, the tyrosine kinases create a binding site for an adapter protein which recruits the GEFs, and then this whole complex is near enough to the RAS proteins to allow the GEF to act on the RAS and turn it on by releasing GDP and letting it bind GTP and activating. Why do we care about these RAS proteins? What do they do? Active RAS proteins bind to an intracellular tyrosine kinase signaling cascade and turn on RAF, which is a tyrosine kinase, which will phosphorylate another kinase, which, for, which phosphorylates another one, and turns on ERK. So it's basically this three kinase long chain originally turned on by the RAS, which is a small g protein, which was initially turned on by activation of the receptor tyrosine kinase. And ERK is heavily involved in cell proliferation and survival, so you can imagine that mutations in this RAS-ERK pathway are prime cancer material. Now, like we kind of touched on, GPCRs and tyrosine kinases are not that different, so I'm sure you're not going to be surprised to hear that certain cascades can be turned on by both GPCRs and tyrosine kinases. And there are also d different SH2 domains that can be bound by different tyrosine kinases and activate pathways that are also activated by GPCRs. So what are some of these pathways that are affected by both GPCRs and receptor tyrosine kinases? So first of all, the RAS proteins can be stimulated by certain alpha or beta gamma subunits as well. We talked about this briefly with the 1213s being involved in small g proteins. Um, some SH2 domain containing proteins, aka adapter proteins, can have phospholate base C activity. Remember phospholate base C is that one that beheads the phosphonosatide to form the diacylglycerol in the IP3, which opens calcium channels. And this can be downstream from beta gamma or from alpha GQ. So there's like 
a lot of different ways this can happen. Other SH2 domains combine PI3 kinase, which creates phosphoinositide phosphorylated on the third phosphate, which is the substrate for P10. If you recall, we discussed that this can be downstream from beta-gamma subunits of a GPCR, but actually not from any alpha subunits. And the cell has to really make sense of all these different cascades. And we'll come back at the end and we'll talk a little bit about kind of how the cell handles this and what happens when the cell doesn't handle this well. But for now, we're going to switch gears a little and we're going to talk about intracellular receptors, which are different from the transmembrane receptors, uh, partially because they're not transmembrane. Um, and also, the ligands that they bind are different because of where they're located and their actions tend to be different. So the ligands of nuclear receptors are always going to be small lipophilic molecules. This includes steroid hormones, vitamin A and D, bile acids, fatty acids, endocrine disruptors. Anything that's small, lipophilic, and uncharged can get through the membrane by itself. What's unique about nuclear receptors is that they're always slow-acting because they target transcription factors, but their effects are also much more long-lasting. They can last for days. They also, like we mentioned, don't bind at the plasma membrane different to the other classes of receptors. So in general, these are going to be involved in mediating cell cycle, proliferation, differentiation, metabolism, immune function, stuff like that, kind of, like we said, long-term changes that give the cell a particular identity. Now, there are 49 nuclear receptors, intracellular receptors, that have been identified, and they're targets for about 16% of small molecule drugs. So this is not insignificant. A lot of our drugs tend to target receptors because it's easier to make drugs that don't have to get through the membrane, but we actually have a significant portion of drugs that do target these receptors, and it's important to talk about them. 47 out of these 49 nuclear receptors are highly specific, and the other two are completely unspecific, extremely promiscuous, and will make your life extremely miserable. The nuclear receptors are then further divided into two different classes, the steroid receptors and the RXR heterodimers. The general structure is the same for all nuclear receptors, no matter which class they fall in. They all contain a C domain that binds the DNA and an E domain that binds the ligand and is responsible for dimerization because nuclear receptors are almost without exception dimers. Now we're going to talk about the steroid receptors first because I think they're a little bit easier. Um, and we're going to use the glucocorticoid receptors as a prototype. Glucocorticoids are often prescribed for inflammation because of their immunosuppressive effects. So we'll see them used in asthma, allergy, uh, even leukemia, sometimes in cases of cerebral edema, anytime where you want to get rid of inflammation relatively quickly, people tend to use steroids. So the glucocorticoid receptors are going to bind to palindromic DNA sequences. Palindromes are words or sets of letters that can be read the same either way, like the name Anna, for example, is a palindrome. So palindromic DNA sequences are the same if you read them 5 to 3 or 3 to 5. And these glucocorticoid receptors, like we said, are, are going to act as dimers. So they one actually binds to each side of the DNA sequence. So if you have a palindromic DNA sequence, you can be pretty sure it can be regulated by a steroid receptor. And then the receptors then bind co-regulators, which activate or suppress gene expression. So in the inactive form, the steroid receptors are actually bound to proteins in the cytosol. They don't live in the nucleus. When a ligand binds to the ligand binding domain of the nuclear receptor, the whole nuclear receptor ligand complex is released from its chaperone protein. It dimerizes with another one, and then it can go through a nuclear pore as a dimer and then recruit co-activators on its open surface and regulate transcription. How they regulate gene expression is um, generally by recruiting acetylators or deacetylators of histones. So in immune downregulation, for example, they're going to downregulate transcription of interleukins and complement proteins, which cause inflammation. And now we reach the RxR heterodimers. So what is an RxR heterodimer? RxR is, you can think of it almost like the base. RxR makes a heterodimer with other receptors that are specific, but the RxR is pretty much going to be the same 
no matter what else it's bound to. So it actually doesn't bind to the ligand itself, right? Because we said RxR is, is non-unique. So the function is determined by the other guy that it binds to. It's basically like an available blank state for the other half of the RxR to bind to. And this pair of RxR and say PxR or whatever the other guy is, is lives bound to the DNA and it's also bound to co-repressors. So unlike the steroid receptors, these are not found in the cytosol at all. They live in the nucleus on the DNA. So you have the RxR, the let's say PxR, which is the one that's going to determine the activity, bound to the DNA and bound to co-repressors. So now a hormone can get shuttled in straight through the membrane of the nucleus. The hormone comes in by itself and it binds to this heterodimer, which is already bound to the DNA, and the binding of the ligand kicks off the co-repressors, recruits a co-activator, and activates the targets. So I used PXR as the example, and I'm gonna, I want to talk about PXR a little bit, because PXR is the receptor that's the unicorn of the nuclear receptors. It's unique because it's not unique. It has expression wherever tissues are exposed to the outside, and it heterodimerizes with RxR, like we said, and it has a very low affinity, non-specific binding pocket, which will bind many, many, many different drugs. And this is important because it is in charge of regulating the CYP450 family. We mentioned the CYPs briefly in the Pharmacology 101 talk when we talked about metabolism, first-pass metabolism, liver metabolism. The CYPs are big in solubilizing many drugs, which means that drugs that activate the PXR-RXR receptor cause upregulation of the CYPs, and this way increases metabolism of now any drug that's being metabolized by the CYPs. So you're going to need to increase the dosage of all your CYP-metabolized drugs to have any effect, and then when you stop the second drug, you're going to get toxic symptoms. So this is why drug drug interactions are so important, and drugs that are PXR activators should not be given with CYP metabolized drugs. This is a really important thing to understand and to know. Some other RXR type receptors and their roles in therapeutics. So first of all, breast cancer. Tamoxifen is one of the biggest can breast cancer drugs. It was originally actually a very bad contraceptive, um, but then eventually it became to, it started to be used in ER positive breast cancer where estrogen is a growth factor for the cancer. So what? how does it work? This is a drug that mimics estrogen and it binds to the estrogen receptors, which is an RxR type receptor, and it actually stops transcription of estrogen because it acts like feedback inhibition. The receptor thinks, oh, we have plenty of estrogen, let's stop making estrogen. It stops or slows estrogen production and therefore slows down the growth of breast cancer, which uses estrogen as a growth factor. These RxR receptors are also important in prostate cancer. So antiandrogens also known as chemical castration, is a fairly effective treatment in about 50% of prostate cancers. And this is because there is a protein called ERG, which when overexpressed is a big marker for proliferation. So it's usually very tightly controlled. But in a lot of prostate cancers, you have this situation called accidental chromosomal fusion, where ERG is placed under the control of the androgen response element. So in tissues with androgen receptors, ERG is going to be highly expressed because of the androgen receptor, which is trying to make androgens, but it's actually making, is actually upregulating ERG and causing proliferation. So in this case, anti-androgen therapy is going to be very effective because it's going to shut down production of androgens and also thereby shutting down this production of ERG. I'll mention just briefly, there's an emerging fifth class of receptors. So if you remember the four we talked about were ion channels, GPCRs, the tyrosine kinase, and its similar friends, and now the intracellular receptors. And this emerging fifth class of receptors are intracellular receptors that are not transcription factors, because we just talked about these the traditional intracellular receptors, which all cause DNA changes and long-term effects. But these fifth class of receptors are intracellular enzymes that have no extracellular domain, and they bind freely soluble gases like CO2 or nitrous oxide and things like that, and they have effects on the cell. This is a class that's under a lot of consideration now, and I won't say too much more about it, except keep your ears open for it. Now, as promised, we're going to get back a little bit to 
handling multiple cross-docking pathways. So part of the way that the cell deals with this is spatially. So many cascades are arranged into complexes or organized so that they signal as a unit. Um, there's also this idea of cyclic AMP microdomains. So the cyclic AMP can be limited to a region of the cell where it's acting, and it's not allowed to diffuse freely. You have a lot of phosphodiesterase hanging around, kind of waiting to break down the cyclic AMP. So it's not allowed to diffuse freely through the cell, and it has only an effect very, very close to where it's being produced. So the same second messenger cyclic AMP will have different effects depending on where it's activated on the cell based on which receptor activated it. And we're just going to talk briefly about dysregulation and what happens when you have dysregulation of some of the receptors. So for example, cholera is dysregulation of a G sub S GPCR. So we get way too much cyclic AMP because this the G sub S protein's ability to turn off gets compromised. So it's always active and it keeps producing more and more cyclic AMP. And although we talked about these nice microdomains, if you're producing way more cyclic AMP than you're supposed to be, eventually it overwhelms the microdomains because the cell just can't keep up anymore. And the cell gets flooded by cyclic AMP and you get all these actions that you don't want. In this case, it happens to be it's opening channels in intestinal membranes and allowing water to flow out. So this is why you get this terrible diarrhea with cholera. Um, but similarly, you can have problems when G sub I is dysregulated. So pertussis actually has the same kind of effect, too much cyclic AMP. But instead of acting on G sub S, it acts by ribosylating G sub I so that it can never be activated. It turns it off permanently. It kills G sub I. So it can't turn off cyclic AMP production. Again, you get the cell gets overwhelmed by cyclic AMP and you get lots of actions that you never would have wanted. You can also get signaling issues because of changes in receptor quantity and quality, which can occur via mutation. These tend to develop over time. In theory, you could have germline and somatic mutations, and sometimes we do have germline mutations, but usually we see somatic mutations because a lot of germline mutations would be embryonic lethal because we just talked about how important it is for the signaling to be well-regulated. And I just will point out that gain of function and loss of function both can both cause disease. It's not always one or the other. Similarly, having the wrong amount of ligand can affect the function. So increased amount of ligand can increase signaling or make signals persist much longer than they should. And this can be caused by mutations or it can be caused by toxins. Parkinson's is an example where you don't have enough ligand, there's not enough dopamine. Um, versus, let's say, tetanus, where you have a problem, you have too much acetylcholine. It doesn't get broken down properly, and the muscles just keep contracting, 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 because they keep getting signals. They're getting flooded by acetylcholine. So we can actually use this knowledge to our advantage pharmacologically. So let's say cyclic AMP can be a therapeutic target, even if it's not the underlying issue. So, for example, GLP-1 agonists in diabetes stimulate cyclic AMP in beta cells of, of the pancreas to produce more insulin. Now, the underlying problem was not lack of cyclic AMP, but we can address the underlying problem, which was lack of insulin, by increasing the amount of cyclic AMP. So it's a really nice therapeutic target. Um, or we can inhibit the phosphodiesterase, which cleaves cyclic AMP, so that the signaling is increased without even actually increasing the amount of cyclic AMP produced. And this is the mechanism of Viagra. Okay, so great. In this two-part receptor talk, we've gone over GPCRs and the different effects of their alpha subunits, receptor tyrosine kinases, and the various effects that they can have, namely the second messenger effects that overlap with GPCRs, the small g protein effects, initiation of apoptosis, and their main role, which is phosphorylating things, mainly transcription factors to turn them on and have long-term effects. Since many of the functions of these transcription factors are growth and development, mutations in receptor tyrosine kinases are pretty often involved in cancer. And these are areas of really relevant investigation, and there are some cancer drugs that target receptor tyrosine kinases specifically and are very, very effective. Nuclear receptors come in two flavors, the steroid hormone receptors, which bind the ligand and dimerize in the cytoplasm before homing to the nucleus, and the RXR heterodimer family, which lives in the DNA 
gets activated by free ligand entering the nucleus and binding to it. We also touched on some things that can go wrong with receptors, and that's part of why this topic is so important. Most drugs target receptors in some way, shape, or form. The more you know and understand about the receptors and the drug mechanisms, the broader and deeper your understanding will be when you're using these drugs as a doctor. Okay, that's it for right now. I'm so glad you joined and thank you for staying till the end. If you enjoyed this and it was helpful, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate the show and recommend it to your friends. Feedback is welcomed and encouraged. Please reach out with comments, questions, concerns, requests, really anything. Reach out to me at medtogether26 at gmail.com and I will respond to you ASAP.